My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we're joined on today's show by Ian Drew, an FTSE 50 senior executive and entrepreneur in the global technology sector who has a proven track record of delivering growth. Um, Ian, very warm welcome to you today. And by all means, thanks for joining us on the show. Scott, it's great to be here. It's great to talk to your audience. And it's such exciting times that we live in uh, that we can actually have this conversation. Lots to discuss. Indeed, there is lots to discuss. And uh, just for those individuals that are tuning in that might not be familiar with Ian, um, he's experienced in a lot of major areas of tech, including sort of Internet of Things, server, security, automotive, telecom, software, lots to discuss. And uh, we're going to be touching on um, a lot of those uh, today. But uh, just to kind of uh, begin with, Ian, for those that uh, might not be familiar with yourself, um, could you just tell us a little bit about sort of you and uh, the businesses that you run and what it is that you're trying to achieve? Um. Most people call me a senior exec now, which probably means I can either play off the front seat at golf or I've failed more times than I've succeeded, but I've done some interesting things. Uh, worked at Intel, you've probably heard of them. Mm. Uh, did quite well, moved around the world, lived in Asia, Europe, and the US. Then I joined a British company that went boom bust uh, in the name of Arm. Uh, went through all the smartphone revolution on that. Did lots of things there. The, we grew the company. I left um, for various reasons that uh, I was I was unhappy with some of their direction. Uh, decided after nine months of gardening leave, really that I needed to go and do things that I was coaching other people to do. So I started three companies, and I joined a charity, and so now I'm serial entrepreneur in the tech, music, energy, and part of a gynae cancer charity. So so an incredible uh, sort of plethora of things, I think it's fair to say. And uh, just with it being um, a very topical matter and issue at the moment with the uh, with the cost of living, I think energy would probably be a, a good place to start. Um, something I understand that uh, your business is um, sort of actively involved in in that realm, um, Ian, is um, essentially trying to build um, a uh, factory that constructs cables in the, uh, the UK. And uh, you're having some sort of real sort of difficulties around that. And there's some challenges around energy related infrastructure that you're trying to get around. And I suppose when we're in a period of time that we're trying to shore up domestic energy security, I guess this is an immediate problem with sort of red tape and things that we sort of need to be looking at sorting out, certainly with a new government in place. If you look at energy, and energy is very closely related to security. Mm. Uh, If the lights go off, if the trains stop, it really affects how countries are run. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at it in the way that we looked at toilet rolls. We should look at it in the way that it's really a utility that we cannot do without. And so it becomes a security of infrastructure problem as much as anything. And so one of my businesses is looking at how energy is transmitted, mm. how we secure energy. So we're looking at high voltage DC. Uh, one of the projects is trying to connect up to Iceland, uh, the UK up to Iceland to provide energy security in both ways there. But as part of looking at all of the energy infrastructure, 
we know that things like high voltage DC cables mm. are really important. Anything over 60 miles, and you move from AC, which is where overhead lines are at the moment, you can hear them crackling as you go underneath them. A lot of the a lot of the offshore wind is AC cables. All of the DC stuff is made abroad. And so how do you build a DC factory? Uh, you would have thought the government may have been very, very interested in this, and part of it is. But you look at how to go build it, and there are a number of barriers really to overcome. And so instead of some countries going, yes, 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 making it easy, there is still a lot of red tape to go through. There's still a lot of support needed for initiatives that take five to 10 years. It's not about what can be built in the current parliament. It's about what can be built in future parliaments and what can be better infrastructure. And we have a lot of thought in this country about what goes on at the dispatch box and what goes on the budget. But what we don't think about as much especially the politicians, is how do we put infrastructure in place that is 5, 10, 15, 20 years to come to fruition, but will grow really this country in the future. And I think that my energy business is really trying to address some of those defects that I'm, I'm seeing at the moment. And I'm taking a 10 to 15 year view, not a one, two, three year view. Do you think that government in this country is uh, guilty of being very short-termist in the way it invests in businesses and tries to unlock the potential of innovation in this country then? Because it seems to me that there are a lot of programmes um, out there that are directed at sort of allowing innovations in short intense bursts to really get off the ground, but there's no legacy support, there's no long-term, there's no thinking about sort of the uh, the 10 years, it's always sort of one to three-year programmes. And what you just said there, again kind of indicates that we're thinking in the short term rather than the long? I'll take a couple of examples. We are great at innovation in this country. We probably rank in the top five if you look at what goes on. Education, even though we knock it, is still brilliant in this country and we need to do more in education and we need to do more around science and technology and investment. And clearly, we want to go and do more research, more design. Our scientists are brilliant. But we sell a whole pile of brilliant companies to foreigners. And so even if they grow to 50, 100, 200 million, we're selling them to Google and Apple. We're selling Mm -hmm. them to private equity houses. And so firstly, I'd take a look at what does it take to build an XR, which is one of the great foreign uh, exporting technology companies that got sold. How do you create the next arm? And it's not going to be in the next parliament. It's going to be in the next 10 years. And it can't just be nurtured by a little investment here or a bit of mentoring there. It takes investment from people who actually give the capital with the skills to grow. It takes joined up thinking with inside of government going, how do we go and use this in certain places? It takes skilled managers and leaders to work on an international stage, not just on a local 
for a, a regional state. And it takes a lot of thinking about what risk profiles and what successes are. We should not be immediately growing $20 million worth of companies and selling them off. We should mm-hmm. be investing in them so they become world leaders that the undergraduates and the graduates want to go into that can shape a profile across the world, not just have multinational companies here that take our talent and don't see us as a long-term investment opportunity. I'd certainly agree with that uh, because what we are essentially doing is we're hampering ourselves by selling our sort of businesses off with the most potential to other international markets rather than, you know, retaining a base in the UK. And considering that we're obviously a very, very big services economy, actually going and exporting those services to the international markets. And I suppose, do you think that that is down to leadership in a way that perhaps we are hesitant to export what we do and maybe there's more of a kind of um, an attraction if you will to sort of cashing in at the first opportunity rather than going and trying the experiment of exporting and perhaps sort of having a setback or a failing um, as a result and having to sort of develop and learn as a result of that more negative experience. I think it's a failure of leadership on three parts. Mm. One, I don't think Government and politicians think that long-term exporting is a potential. I disagree totally with them, but I think there is a number of non-financial companies that could become world leaders in their areas. And we need to set up infrastructures to allow that. Secondly, the investment community in the UK is all too happy to sell to Americans or Chinese or whoever comes along and make a quick turn on their money rather than a long-term investment potential. And so when I talk to the investment community, there are very few of them who take the long-term. There's plenty of them out there that goes, okay, we'll invest in these people in Oxford or Cambridge or London or Edinburgh or Glasgow or Belfast. And in two years' time, we'll move the headquarters to Silicon Valley. And in five years' time, they'll get bought by Google, Facebook, Mm. Adobe, HP, whoever. In my mind, that's the wrong type of investment. And we've set the premise in the UK that it's okay to do that with our VC community. The third one is there are very few leaders in this country who see themselves as Broad leaders changing industry. Mm. People like Warren East, who I've had immense pleasure working with, is one of them. But there are very few of them outside of the financial industry, and we need to grow more of them. We need to have worldwide visionaries who can change industries and be seen as worldwide leaders. And so that coaching, that mentoring, that developing needs to take place. And so for me, I think it's a failure on the three parts, the government, the VC community and the industries themselves. Yeah, I think maybe sort of there's a misconstru- there's a misconstruing of what leadership means um, on some uh, parts of uh, of all those three things, isn't there? I think sometimes we think of leadership um, fundamentally as being management oriented. And rather than sort of focus on the uh, the development side, nurturing people, nurturing potential, 
it is more focused on just the uh, the getting stuff done, the convenience side, and the financial return, isn't it? It's again, it's it's the very short termist view. You look at there's a number of different ways to structure management and leadership. Mm. Management is hitting the next quarter, hitting the next two quarters. Leadership is setting the quarters up in five years' time mm. that they blow away the analyst predictions. It's about how do you how do you go and and create more value in your company over time, not just hit the number that somebody's been set to you. It's about seeing opportunities and taking them. It's about developing people. It's about developing an ecosystem around you. It's not about can I hit my next revenue target or mm. can I go win X or Y. Leadership is more than that. Leadership takes thought, takes action, takes experience, takes trust, takes risk, all balanced into an understanding that whatever happens in the next 30 days, I'm focused on what happens in the next three, five, ten years that will grow this business quicker than the investors expect. That's exactly right. I certainly agree with you um, on uh, that front. Um, leadership uh, shouldn't be taken to just be the management side of things. It is very much the uh, the long-term view. And um, having sort of talked about some of the issues sort of around leadership and around ambition, and um, I do want to talk about something else that is a little bit of a lingering problem, uh, more on the sort of technology and software side. Um, and we talked about infrastructure already and infrastructure um, something that certainly will be affecting infrastructure in years to come more and more is the world of sort of internet of things that sort of next band of technology Mm -hmm. embedded computing and um, you've identified haven't you that there are some real issues within that side of industry and um, until sort of changes are made um, we're not essentially going to sort of really maximize the potential of that sector either so what are some of the uh, the problems that um, are sort of lingering in uh, in that side of things? If you to look at what the Internet of Things is, and I hate the term Internet of Things, but we'll use it here because mm. everybody kind of understands, it's that Venn diagram of not your phone, mm. not cloud computing and not a PC. So it includes cars and fridges. It includes everything in your home from your printer it includes smart factories, that whole plethora of things. And the difference between all of that and your phone is your phone's managed. You get daily updates or weekly updates. You get the ability to have an app store. You have much more security. Whereas your printer and your gateway and your house and your refrigerator, once you buy it, it's up to you to manage rather than somebody else doing it which leads to huge security holes because guess what? You're not going to patch your printer and you're not going to fix the latest driver on something. Mm. And so you're allowing people in every walk of life from the traffic lights through to the rail network, through to the electricity infrastructure, through to your home, really not quite an open door, but very close to it. Mm. Um, the security infrastructure. Now, that there's a number of reasons for that. One, it's hard. Secondly, 
it's run by companies that really want to monetize data. The Amazons of the world and the Googles of the world and the Microsofts of the world. And they don't really care about the end node. They just care about their data and how do they monetize that. It's through getting your data and putting it in a cloud somewhere and having proprietary infrastructure for it. Until we get the same infrastructure as phones and laptops, which are more horizontally integrated, mm. we're not going to get the security that we need. We're not going to get the ability for OEMs to really drive their infrastructure and own their data. And we'll be reliant on the will of other people really to go and patch things over time. Or you spend an awful lot of money doing it with consultants, neither of which are scalable. And so for me, the Internet of Things is a huge security problem that needs to be addressed, and that's what one of my companies is starting to do. But it needs to be addressed with an ecosystem of players, and Europe and the UK can take a leadership position in this mm. because we have the technology, we have the smart people, we have the ability to put ecosystems together before the Americans and the Chinese take over. Because guess what? We gave away a lot of the smartphone technology and other countries are making use of the P&L from that. It's not there in IoT yet. And I'm pushing hard and rolling rocks uphill really to make sure that we have European infrastructure in place that allows European companies to lead the way and not be dominated by America and China. And the Internet of Things is the next battleground for that. And it's it's fascinating, isn't it, when you think that all of that could be achieved simply by sort of better using the technology that we already have at our disposal and sort of just reviewing our own business models. I mean, it, it's all essentially down to just the way that we're doing and using things. Very much so. A lot of the technology is there. But, again, governments don't specify, even in their own that they need to go use some of it. We never get the, okay, these are the security features we need, and it needs to be updated over the next 10 years. Your traffic light systems could go insecure now, but nobody knows in 10 years' time what, what sort of hacks are needed. So you need to be able to update them remotely. Mm. That system is not being put in place as well as it should be. We need to have everybody thinking collectively about the next 10 years of technology, not about the next 10 weeks. And that's going to involve all stakeholders, isn't it? It's not. It's going to involve governments, it's going to involve businesses, and it's also going to sort of involve consumers as well, isn't it? Because ultimately these solutions um, need to be meeting sort of their day-to-day needs and it needs to give them that just sort of a little bit more sort of additional reassurance, convenience, and ultimately uh, security because ultimately security and ownership of data when you sort of actually hit it hard at the consumer and make them realise that that's what this is about, it's a huge priority. If somebody hacks your phone, when you, I, I, I've given speeches in the past about how personal your phone is to you. It's the first thing you look at in the morning for 80% of people. It's the last thing you look at at night, and you look at it every few minutes during the day. It's the most personal device you have. Somebody hacks your phone, you're really messed up. 
and you will go, oh my God, what do I do without my phone? And my data's on there and my photos are on there. Somebody hacks your car. Somebody hacks your uh, gateway in your house, your Wi-Fi gateway in your house. Worse, somebody hacks the light in your office and they start switching on and off constantly. Somebody hacks the traffic light. Somebody takes down the national grid because they've hacked in there. I'll tell you now, that's 10 times worse than getting your phone hacked. And yet we have a lot more of our thought process going into phones than we do the rest of the infrastructure. And that's the wrong way around. And it's the wrong way around because, like Vickers, you only think about that infrastructure when it goes wrong. You only call your Vicar when there's a problem. Until the traffic lights get hacked or until the national grid gets hacked or until your lights start flashing because you've been hacked or until your gateway goes down, you won't think about it. Whereas your phone, because it's got a screen on you, think about it. And for me, that's the emotional difference and that's the education that needs to be brought in place for every consumer is how many devices do you have in your house Mm. and how do you manage them all? And that security becomes more important to you than the security in your phone. It's exactly that, isn't it? And um, I suppose what we need to do away with is the uh, the reactionary approach to things like this. Rather, and obviously we need to be more proactive on that because what you're essentially saying is we're, we're very, very conscious of things like smartphones, but we don't think about what might happen with other devices in the home and sort of outside in our national infrastructure until something bad happens. And you know, by then it's too late. Then there's 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 nothing that you can do. I mean, you're you're essentially left to sort of deal with the uh, the collateral damage. And that's going to cost money. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, investing a pound now saves you £100 later on. But people don't understand the need for that pound in security. And so people will be spending £100 later on because they've been hacked. And it's not about the security now. It's about this infrastructure over its full life cycle. It's an, it's an insurance policy against being hacked over time. And you look at what Russia is doing, and I'm really surprised they haven't hacked more of our infrastructure. Mm. I, and you look at how big the Chinese are, are doing things. We need to be making sure that in Europe we own a lot more of our security infrastructure and can drive it strategically going forward. It's incredibly important and it's something that perhaps people don't necessarily think about, isn't it? So certainly food for thought for anybody tuning into this podcast, certainly those in the uh, in the political sphere for sure. And uh, so we talked about... Uh, I, I, I come back to selling off some of the companies and a lot of them are security and technology companies. We will regret that at some stage in the future. I don't know when, but you only know when some of these things are important, when you need them and they're not there. And that's the difference between the Internet of Things and your phone. Your phone, you see it every day. The Internet of Things is that invisible Internet around you, around your businesses, around your everyday lives, around the infrastructure in the country that only you realize when it's gone. Exactly that. And we can't essentially afford to be in a position where we're being reactionary to that, as we've talked about. So a lot to consider for, as I say, anybody that might be listening into this particular program today. 
And um, obviously, with on that note, I mean, it's like um, there's another part of the uh, the conversation that I would like to us to draw us onto as well, Ian, and that's the fact that um, over the last couple of years. Something that I think we have become sort of increasingly aware of is sort of our kind of personal well-being and uh, work-life balance. And I think that's come largely as a result of the uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic, hasn't it, in some sense? And uh, other sides of the work that you're doing, um, you talked um, essentially that you're involved in uh, gynecological cancer research. Um, you're also involved in sort of music technology, which is sort of tying into health and wellness. And uh, you've got a lot of things there that are going to be rolling out over the course of the uh, the next year. So could you tell us a little bit about some of those other projects that you've been doing and uh, sort of how that sort of ties into the well-being side of things? Because there is a real increased emphasis on that, certainly uh, from my experience. If you go back a number of years, nobody ever talked about breast cancer. No. I remember growing up and nobody ever talked about breast cancer. And now you get women walking around Hyde Park in bras in the middle of the night and it's everywhere. And it's, mm. it's very clear that the spell has been broken there. When I was a teenager and in my 20s and 30s, nobody ever talked about testicular cancer or prostate cancer. Yet when I'm in London, you can see if you fumbled your nuts on the side of a bus. It's very open that things have changed with regards to men's cancers. I've done them November. Mm. The one taboo cancer that really doesn't get talked about is gynecological cancer, mm. ovarian, vagina, womb, all the rest of it. And so that touched my life before I, when I was at ARM, after I left ARM. And so I was lucky enough to be asked to become a trustee and then vice chairman of the UK's largest gynae cancer charity. And what it really is, is about how do you invest in DNA testing, how do you invest in markers, that really you can go and get tested with a swab in the mouth, the same way as you did in COVID. Mm. Put it on that little strip and go, yes, no. And that yes means something's changed in my DNA, I better go get checked out. Early detection is what saves lives. Mm. We found that out about COVID as well. And so we're investing, and we have been for 10 years in early detection, and there's been some remarkably good analysis come out uh, over the last year, two years, that also links some of these testing with other cancers as well, like breast cancer. And so DNA testing could be used mm. in a number of different analyses. So early detection saves lives. And that's what is important here. Both men and women having a test that can go, you need to get yourself checked out. And so it's easy to do, it's cheap, and it's reliable. Same as COVID. And so we're using a lot of the infrastructure before COVID came out of testing. And now we're using the same infrastructure again to do some of the DNA testing. And that is important. But also what's important is mental health. Mm. And I've been an exec and I know how bad mental health can get. I'm horrible at staying at home, working at home. It drives me crazy. 
I've seen stress and I've seen burnout from way too many execs and I've seen lots of stress from employees. So one of the things I wanted to do when I left ARM was how do you help stress? How do you help and improve people's emotions? And so I was lucky enough to bump into a brilliant guy called Philip Shepard who has a music technology uh, background. He's a musician who had some ideas about how to go and create music everywhere. And what we found was when we analyzed what was potential is having people compose music in any situation really help their mental state. So we're lucky enough that we have some of that technology that can now enable people to walk along. And as you walk, the music is composed by you through signals in your watch that really is linking you to your surroundings, your speed, your heart rate. Or when you're driving, your car is modulating the music that you're listening to and composing the music you listen to. Mm. So instead of listening to an orchestra, you're conducting the orchestra. Or you can have infinite amounts of calm music over the internet to help you sleep or wake up or focus. This is not about replacing music and albums. It's about having the consumer closer to and in charge of the composition process real time that then gets deeper into your brain than almost anything. You think about children when they grow up, they start to dance, they start to walk, mm. and then the first thing is they start to sing. And that is a deep, visceral emotion inside of the brain, that music and rhythm. And that's part of culture, and it's part of every culture on the planet. And so we started a company called Life School Music. We've been very successful with it. We have some great products coming out in the next couple of years, but they're all about how do you create an emotion in people's heads mm. that really is a now time and place. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be relaxed? Do you want to be motivated? It's not about creating the next Beatles or Coldplay music. It's about creating music that will allow you to go into an emotional state that you want to be. Not by us telling you this is the music is by you controlling mm. that music and allowing that state of mind to be created because you are part of the composition process. And that's absolutely incredible that it taps into something that's sort of so based to sort of the human genealogy, if you will, and sort of uses that for the benefit of sort of health and uh, well-being. And I think at a time where we're we become so much more acutely aware of our sort of our mental health, our work-life balance, um, the way that we spend our spare time. Um, there's a, there's immense potential for something like that, isn't there? Um, now that obviously this is something that we're uh, we're very very conscious of. So we won a Webby last year, mm. and we were approached by Twitch, the big uh, TV channels that Amazon run, mm. and they have a real-time TV show. And they needed music composed real time because their show is lots of questions to the audience going, what do you think A or B? Where do you think the show should go? 
that composing music for that was horrible for them. So we took their chat, we did chat analysis, and we composed music based on chat analysis. Mm. And that then enabled them to grow their show audience real time. They were getting a lot more listeners. The listeners also helped compose some of the bass music for the, the characters. And so the audience actually composed the music real time based on their chat analysis. And we won a Webby for that, and we were Emmy nominated for that. Now we have other things coming out in the next year that will do even bit better than that. But it's really about time and place, music composition, changing people's emotions and changing people's emotions for the better state. And so it's not about replacing albums. It's about having an emotional connection to the music you're listening to. It's absolutely incredible, and um, I think it only serves as well that we also touch on uh, the, the the first uh, matter that we mentioned, uh, the importance of, of course, physical health and uh, sort of prevention in um, all of that, prevention and early detection, and that's certainly something that I'm, in, I'm incredibly passionate about, and I think we've learned a, a terrible, terrible lesson from COVID, haven't we? I mean, it's like we've, we've learned that um, early detection um, is incredibly important from the COVID patient's perspective. But given, of course, uh, how the NHS um, found its resources restricted during the pandemic, and we've seen such an incredible rise in cancer deaths during that time, that just shows, doesn't it, that that early detection is is really, really so, so critical. And uh, with technology such as this, I mean, there's a lot of potential to uh, to save a great many lives. Technology used correctly can do an awful lot of things. AI analysis. Mm early DNA changes will really drive better healthcare. And we need to make sure that we as a country and as individuals have a culture of making sure that we're using the best technology possible for early detection. Because by the time cancer spreads, um, your life analysis changes. It's about getting diagnosis early and giving you more options. And if we can do that using technology, using tools that we've created as an industry, not just me, Mm -hmm. we will enable much better life progressions in everybody. And by the way, my music stuff, if people go, I want to go and go for a run based on the music and it motivates them a little bit. Mm. Getting healthier that way is also important. This is about how to create healthier individuals, both body and mind. It's absolutely incredible. And um, it's, it's hugely important as well because we've become so much more aware, I think of our own mortality over the course of the year of the last uh, couple of years. And, a lot more people are much more conscious about what they're putting into their bodies, how they're spending their spare time, they're prioritising their mental health. So technology such as this, it's it's so critical to uh, to health and uh, to wellness uh, moving forward. And for you know the beleaguered leader who may be the CEO of a multinational bank who's working all hours, who knows the impact that uh, such technology might or might have on their lives. Um, well, actually, yeah, you, go on. You, you look at video calls, and we're doing a video call now, so mm. all you podcasters, we're actually on a video. I do more video calls now than I've ever done. 
and I'll tell you now, it stresses me out a lot more than meeting people. Mm. And so people go, oh, well, you must be so much more relaxed because you're working from home. Hey, you know what? No, I'm not, because I, I now walk 10, 10 metres and I'm, I have to be dad and I have to be husband, mm. whereas I used to drive home for half an hour and I could decom- decompress. Video calls where you don't get the full body language of looking at people mm. is really stressful. And we need to understand that what we're creating is a different mental state in people. And over time, that we need to change as leaders and managers, we need to change how we change and adapt on how we manage people. Because we are creating people who won't come in the office every day and every mm. week. We are creating companies that are virtual. We are creating people who I've hired probably 30, 40 people without actually seeing them in the last two years. And I've gone round and I've talked to everybody now. But we do need to create ways in which people understand that it's okay to take time out. It's okay mm. to be fresh. It's okay to be different. And so for me, that's what I've learned over the last two years is how to manage people differently how to be a different leader and how some of this new technology is good and bad. Mm. You're absolutely right because for all the benefits of sort of remote technology and the hybrid working format, if we call it that, um, obviously it gives you the flexibility to sort of uh, balance your sort of work life. Um, But it also blurs the distinction between the workplace and the home, doesn't it? So, you can find that quite often you're working longer hours, you're finding yourself checking your emails at 11 o'clock at night, and that isn't necessarily something that you would have been doing whilst working perhaps in that kind of more communal office environment. Totally agree. And we need to understand there are pros and cons with with everything. Mm. Oh, and I, I've, um, my music company doesn't have a headquarters. It, we're a virtual company. Mm. So, and we have people in three different continents. We got them all together a couple of weeks ago, and most of the people we'd never met before. And just judging how tall people are and how they take their coffee and learning about their home life mm. for a week was so rewarding, even though I've been working with some of them for two years and we've had video calls every other day. I never knew how tall some of these people were. Just that little, little thing. And for me, we need to understand and change our style of management and leadership Mm. with this new technology coming in because it will be here forever and it's not going to go away and we're not going to all of a sudden have offices in the middle of London every day. We may still have offices, but they may be different. And companies will be different and leadership, the definition of leadership will be different. It will exactly. It is difficult, as you say, as well, to kind of when you're sort of conversing over video technology to pick up on those social cues so much more different than it is uh, that it certainly is in person. So that's one big thing, of course, to uh, to consider in all of this. Um, I am conscious that we're beginning to uh, to run short of time, unfortunately, on the programme, which is terrible because, I mean, it's like I'm thoroughly enjoying the discussion. and I could genuinely do this all evening. Uh, but um, just given as well that, you know, your businesses are operating across so, so many different fronts and you're so passionate about every single one of them from a personal perspective uh, for you as a leader, I, 
I'd love to kind of get um, sort of an idea of what it is that kind of motivates you, drives you on, gets you to really get up in the morning and kind of make these businesses work. I'll tell you a little story. When I left Arm, um, some people call me successful. Um, and so I still had a passion. I'm still good looking and fairly young. And I needed to do nine months of doing nothing. Uh, my wife mm. loved the idea of that for about three weeks. I got totally bored. And I painted the uh, shed three times. And then all of a sudden, I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And people kept calling me up saying, how about you do this great job here and that job there? And you go, I don't really want it. Mm. So I had to figure out a way of processing, not what I didn't want, but what I did want. And what I did was try to figure out what I'm passionate about and what I really want to achieve. So I'm an engineer by trade. Mm. I'm a, uh, I designed chips to begin with, and I took my life as an engineering project. So I wrote down everything I did. I wrote down all my successes and failures. I wrote down about the kids and the family and where we've been and all the rest of the good stuff. And then I thought to myself, how do I get to my end state? And so I wrote my obituary as if I died at the age of 83. Mm. And I wrote it as if my best friend was giving my obituary over my coffin in a church. And so I wrote that down. And I wrote it again. And then I was happy with it. And so I did a gap analysis of what I'd currently done to what I really wanted to do. Mm. And I called that fun. I circled it and I called it fun. And that three things that I circled, stay married to my wife, raise a million pounds for the Eve Appeal, put one to 3,000 proper jobs in the UK and Europe are the three things that get me going. And so every day and every week, I can now look at my calendar and go, those three things, Am I achieving them? Is this meeting worth me going to or not? Mm. If the answer is no, doesn't meet my goals, you know, I go, no, thank you, we must be new. So I go and do I go and do the things that drive those three things. And if I can achieve those three things by the time I'm 83, I'll die a happy man and I will be motivated to get them. And so I look at my calendar, I look at what I do, I look at the things that I say yes and no to. And I really modulate my time based on those three things and those three things only. And everybody I hire, they go, okay, so what motivates you? And I tell them the same story. And for me, it's about creating an environment that I want to get up in the morning and I want to go do things because if I do that, it will motivate other people. I'm just a catalyst to other people doing brilliant things. And I have to be motivated to do that. It's quite an incredible story um, about the uh, the sort of obituary style thing because it reminds me so much of Alfred Nobel actually, and because uh, I think he, uh, his uh, brother um, sort of passed away while he was sort of a younger man, and uh, he was actually uh, mistaken for his brother. I mean, I think it was the French press thought that he was the one that was deceased, and I think uh, when they put his obituary out in the newspapers, Nobel, of course, being the inventor of dynamite, they called him the the orchestrator of death or something like that, and. Uh, he was 
so appalled by the fact that that would have been his legacy that he completely and utterly changed the course of the rest of his life. And now, of course, we have the Nobel Peace Prizes, and that just sounds, it sounds so much like that. Well, for me, I'm ju- I, I try and be a leader rather than a manager. I try and be a coach rather than a teller. And so having people around me that help me get to my goals is important. Mm. And I know I can't get there on my own, but you have to create companies to do that. You have to create infrastructures to do that. And you have to be able to put yourself out there and be susceptible to be shot down. And I'm, I'm happy to do that because I now have in my head what I want to achieve and I will try my best to achieve it. And if, you, if I fail, it won't be through somebody else's failure, it'll be through my failure alone. Wise words for anybody tuning into this particular podcast, for sure, and plenty to think about. And just before we uh, we wrap up on the uh, the program, Ian, and it's been an incredible and enthralling conversation, I have to say. Um, just thinking about sort of uh, the many um, sort of uh, missions that your business is really trying to achieve. If you could maybe look ahead, sort of twelve months from now, let's say, as we sort of navigate quite a tricky economic period, where ideally do you sort of see yourself and see your businesses um, this time next year? When COVID hit, I got all of my CEOs on a phone call and I said, we're not going to get government bailouts. We're going to hire people. We're going to grow the businesses and we're going to set ourselves up for success. And that's what we've done. The next year, I looked at the same thing. For me, economically, the environment is bad, but you can make use of that. If it's bad for me, it's worse for other people. I'd much prefer that I'm leading the pack, whether it's good or bad in the environment. So how do you set yourself up for the success? And that's what my companies are doing. And hiring the right people, enabling the right people to do the right thing, that's important. So I see myself a year closer to my death and a year better that I'm filling out and ticking boxes on my obituary. I may not get to my obituary, but uh, I will be a year close to it in a year's time, and I will make progress on it. Mm. If I haven't made progress, I will be my biggest critic. <laughs> and like I say, I mean, just sticking by those aims just uh, so passionately is uh, so incredible. And like I say, I, th- I think as a leader as well, I mean, you owe it to yourself to be your biggest critic, don't you? And always be willing to strive to improve and so embrace the setbacks when you do have that little bit of disappointment. Develop from it, learn from it, and push on. Don't see it as terminal. Agreed. Um, failure is just temporary. Success is is passing, and you need to grow. You need both of them to be successful. You only learn from your failures. Anyway, Scott, thank you very much indeed. It's been brilliant talking mm. to you, and I hope at least one person has listened all the way to the end. I certainly hope so as well, because it's been an incredible conversation and an absolute pleasure for me to welcome yourself, Ian Drew, uh, FTSE 50 Senior Executive and Entrepreneur, onto uh, today's podcast today. And if you have been tuning in and you would like to essentially leave your own uh, take on uh, this podcast that we've had, um, or you feel passionate about any of the issues that we've been discussing, um, you can leave a comment with us via Leaders Council, that's all one word, .co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us and if you are the head of your own business or organization and you've got your own story to share on what we've discussed or any topical matter or issue that is relevant to you 
you too can apply to be on our program via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Um, Ian, to you, it's been an immense pleasure welcoming you onto the show and thanks uh, so much again for your time. And, you know, as your businesses sort of uh, sort of chart course through this period and look to um, really come good on those goals that you have, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps even look to uh, catch up and have you back on the show just to see how sort of that's all starting to, uh, to materialise and how closer we are to that obituary of yours. Love to. Thank you very much indeed, Scott. It would be fantastic. And to everybody that's been listening in today, I've been your host, Scott Chowner, on today's bumper episode of the Leaders' Council podcast. Do take care all and goodbye.